a time to think. What time is it? Check it's, your clock. It's a time to think, Josh. Yeah. It, you can't read a, an analog clock anyways, so <laughs> if you looked at one, you wouldn't know what time it is, so we're telling you. It is a time to think time everywhere. To think is a podcast where we seek to carefully, thoughtfully engage with issues that are important in the culture and the church, seeking to fill a vacuum that we saw. Sorry, of, we got to stop. No, we're not going to stop. People just need to know that you have a hearty laugh. We're not stopping, Chris. Uh, all right, we won't stop. The clock don't stop and we don't stop. Well, see, that's the thing. You said people can't even read the analog clock anymore. So I just that really got me, Josh. That uh, really well, got me. I've, I've offended many now, I'm sure. Uh, well, they can learn. They can learn. After we blubber a little bit, our, our hope in this podcast is to carefully engage with issues important in the culture and the church. Pastor Chris is pastoring a church in Stevens Point, Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Josh Holland here, pastoring in Wausau, Wisconsin. Pastor Chris with a background in poli-sci and a Master of Arts in Religion, currently pursuing doctoral studies. Myself with a background in broadcast communication uh, and uh, pursuing a Master's of Divinity. So we're kind of coming in with different angles, different spheres. And then our full-time job is to think through how things happening around our church impact the people in the church. Mm-hmm. And And one thing we're thinking about, Chris, to start the year is that the, the kickoff of the year is a time where a number of people engage with the Bible for the first time in a while or in a new way. And, and or in we, a committed way. A committed in a committed way, way yeah. right? Um, maybe a more formal way than just that lingering guilt of I should read more, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and we're doing that in a more formal way in our church with some scripture yeah. memorization. And, and as we do that, we wanted to take some time to talk through the, the qualities of a quality book. Four major qualities of the Bible, authority, inerrancy, sufficiency, and clarity, because we think that these four historic qualities, these doctrines about the Bible actually intersect with a postmodern culture in a pretty unique way. So last episode, we talked about the authority of the scriptures and how the authority of the Lord speaks into a culture that says, I alone am my own authority, and, and then finished off by saying, it's the best thing for me. It's the, it's the good news of the gospel that the Lord Jesus has reasserted his authority both in laying down his life for me and in taking it back up yep. for me. And now that he's taken it back up, he's got some instructions yep. for me. Uh, this episode, we're talking about inerrancy, which it kind of feels like one of those out there in the ether words. Uh, so we might also call inerrancy trustworthiness and not just trustworthy as in your parents are more trustworthy than not, Sure, but, but total trustworthiness, Right. Complete trustworthiness. Complete. Without error. Without error. So, so tell me more about the, the idea that the Bible is without error. Yeah. I mean, where, where do you want to start with it, Josh? There's, there's a lot that can be said. I want to start where you want to start, Chris. <laughs> okay. You want to start where I want to start. Well, I, I think it would probably be helpful for people to, to get some perspective on what this has been like within the Western church, at least the past 150 years or so. So the, the, what we call the doctrine, the teaching of inerrancy, uh, traditionally been understood uh, throughout the history of the church, the past couple thousand years, going back into uh, before the incarnation of Jesus, uh, when uh, the, the people of Israel held the scriptures in front of them, um, the traditional understanding has always been that the scriptures, as they have been given to us in their inspired original documents, are without error in all that they speak to. And so if God says this in the Bible, he has truly said this in the Bible, that it is, it is beyond questioning concerning the, 
the genuineness of this statement as being the word of God. Now, over the past 150 years or so, there has been uh, a movement, and this has coincided with what we've talked about before, the, the cult of self that developed um, really out of uh, some, some continental uh, philosophy in the, the 19th century. And what started happening was uh, because the, the commitment within the um, theological academy in continental Europe in the 19th century, they began to do something we would call de-supernaturalizing or demythologizing Christianity, basically saying, well, we can't believe, we can't believe that the Bible would be inerrant. We can't believe that this is the case because we can't believe in any type of supernatural reality. So they're starting with an assumption. An assumption, yes. There is no supernatural, which we, is as provable as the assumption there is a supernatural. Right. And then we're importing that that assumption, there is no supernatural, yes. onto the book. The book can no longer be trustworthy. Yeah, and it's very important to understand this right, right off the bat because there are a lot of people who uh, get interviewed by CNN, get interviewed by Time Magazine when it comes around Easter time and, and Christmas time, and, and they're individuals who are kind of purported to be experts uh, in, in Christianity, experts in the Bible, and they'll say things like, well, you know, we, we know the Bible says this, but we know that that's not necessarily true, and this is all based out of an assumption. That, that was generated out of the 19th century. So it's, it's somewhat recent, but also kind of stale. And so there, there began a debate um, in the late 19th, early 20th, early 20th century uh, concerning the, the matter of inerrancy. Uh, is the Bible truly the word of God without error? Can it be trusted fully? Uh, or is it something that we can look at and, and try to pick through to determine whether or not something is what we would call genuine or or disingenuous, mm-hmm. so an entire um, an, an entire branch of theology began to develop out of that, and the the job was basically to to sift through the Bible and to to sit in criticism of it. Now we would say Jesus seminar, baby. The Jesus seminar, yes, very very bizarre. I mean, bizarre. the Jesus seminar is probably the most bizarre of it. Yeah, where you have people color-coding the scriptures in red, green, and yellow, essentially, to say... Drawn marbles, things like that. Which ones are definitely the words of Jesus? Which ones are maybe the words of Jesus, but maybe not? Which ones are definitely not? And, I mean, that that goes back to our first quality, which is authority. And and Mm -hmm. who, in that regard, is taking up the mantle of which words are true? Right. I am. Yeah. Which means I'm the authority. Yeah. So these, you mentioned, I asked you earlier... Do you want to start with authority? Do you want to start with inerrancy? And you said, well, I mean, they play off of each other, yeah. right? If, if something is true, it's true and authoritative. It's if authoritative, you know, authoritative and true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so as as we think about the issue of inerrancy, and it's a word that I think is very important. Um, you know, sometimes you and I will will drop theological terms into our sermons, and we will grant fully that 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 our church will not necessarily Some, use that word. Sometimes I look at my wife and I say, I wish you knew all the dumb things I didn't say. <laughs> because then you'd go, oh, proportionally, he's only like one out of 20. Right. <laughs> yeah. The same thing with theological terms. I just wish you guys knew the ones I don't say. Right, you right. Know, it, Super lapsarianism. Then I could get my pat on the back that yeah. I desperately need of... Self-control. Yes. But inerrancy, yes. it's one of the ones we want to let slip out. We want yeah, to say it. Yeah, we, we do. And, and we want people to know it because it is so fundamental to understanding the nature of what Christianity is. 
And it's because genuine Christianity is a religion of a book, right? So we believe that God has acted in history and those acts in history are recorded for us and interpreted for us in a book that has been inspired directly by God through the use of human authors so that what they have written is a true and accurate record of all the things that it speaks to. Mm -hmm. Inerrancy is shorthand for that. A true and accurate record of all things it speaks to. Yeah. So that's what we mean when we say it's true. Yep. It's a good record, and, and record is important because Christianity is historical. Correct. Christianity is not a philosophy. Right. Christianity is good news. And when you think about news, you say, is news reported truly or untruly, accurately or inaccurately? So to say the Bible is inerrant is to say the news is reported accurately, mm-hmm. right? And um, if it's not, then Christianity falls. Right. Simply because... We're not inviting people to a set of beliefs, okay? And, and it's important to kind of differentiate this here because what, what the significance of inerrancy has to bear on Christian belief is that we are calling people to believe something that is. We're calling people to believe something that is true. So when we call people to, and we just talked about this in our, our men's group uh, on Tuesday night, we were talking about Romans 3.25, and about uh, the, the righteousness of God being displayed through the, the, the propitiation, another word that people should know, mm-hmm. uh, but this, this offering that has absorbed God's righteous judgment against sin on behalf of his people to be received by faith. Now, in our culture, faith is typically associated with a squishy belief that I just, well, I believe something. Like, I, I believe it's going to snow tomorrow. I believe... The importance is not the object of the faith, but the feeling. Yes, the, faith the fact the, that we the do the believe. strength of, you know... Right, yeah. right. Christmas movies, man. Yeah, Christmas movies. Just believe, baby, <laughs> like a little kid. Yeah, it's important to get on the train, right? So when it, when it comes to what we invite people to in, in, in sharing the gospel with people, we're sharing good news and we're inviting people to trust in a person and a, the work of that person in Jesus Christ that is clearly displayed for us in the Bible. And so when you trust Jesus, you are trusting a person. Uh, if, if I were to come to you, Josh and I were to say um, something to the effect of, Josh, you can, you, can trust, you can trust that yesterday I drove to Appleton, Wisconsin. Now, if that had any bearing on your life, Let's pretend it does have a bearing on your life. Uh, let's say you asked me to go pick up something in Appleton yesterday. Um, Chipotle. Chipotle, yeah. Let's say oh. you asked me to pick up Chipotle did yesterday. Did you go to Appleton yesterday? I did go to Appleton yesterday. And you didn't pick up Chipotle. I apologize, we'll but I did that. not. So, we'll talk about that later. Uh, so I you know, went over to Appleton, and, and let's say Josh's trust in me to pick that up. You know, I communicated to him, Josh, I'm going to Appleton tomorrow. He said, could you pick Chipotle up for me? I came back from Appleton and I brought it to you, it would be a warranted trust. Mm-hmm. So you would you would feel justified in your trusting. Now, let's say I told you that was the case. I went to Appleton, but I didn't actually go. Part of it would be evident by the fact that I didn't get you something. Uh, but the other part would be evident by the fact that you could actually discernibly look, did Chris actually go there? Take a look at my car, you know, the odometer, uh, talk to my wife, whatever mm-hmm. it might be. In Christianity, we are inviting people to an historic religion. In, in, in the Bible, we have a record of what God has done, and then it's important to kind of piggyback off of that here because some people say, okay, well, I just want to look at what Jesus said. 
right? But the Bible is more than just a record of something that happened, but it's also the interpretation Mm -hmm. of what that meant, what the significance of that actually was. uh, Jake Gresham Machen says theology is event plus meaning. Yeah. And that liberalism wants to say theology is only event or to deny the event Mm -hmm. or to change the meaning, but you have to have event and meaning. And those things come from the trustworthiness of scripture. I think one, I don't know if you were trying to press the analogy this far, but I'm going to, because I want to go for it. Uh, Because you want Chipotle, right? Yeah, I could, I could reasonably, I could talk to your wife. I could check your odometer. There's some, some things I could do to investigate the truthfulness of your claim. Uh, I could never really be totally sure unless I was in the car with you. Yeah. Because if I checked your odometer and there was not enough miles on it, then you could say, well, I took someone else's car. Yeah. You know, there, there are different ways, unless I was actually with you, that I could never totally prove it, but I can reasonably prove it. And that's something that I think is important. We talk about the trustworthiness of the, the scriptures is some people, uh, particularly I think from a position of non-belief, get hung up on this idea that you can be totally 100% sure of anything. Yeah. As if it's only the Christians who believe the Hebrews 11, um, faith is the assurance of things right. hoped for. No, all of us are, are to some degree making a probability judgment. Correct. And so we look at the scriptures and we say, man, there's some real distinct evidence of this being true and archaeologically being supported. And, and there's, there's some things in this book, like the doubting of the apostles, that really don't make sense unless it's actually a true book. Because why mm-hmm. on earth would you paint the apostles in such a negative light half the time? Yep. Um, or the inclusion of this detail or the type of literature or all these different things. And, and we come to a belief that says it's most reasonable to think that this book is true and trustworthy. And throughout history, the church has concluded that generation after generation after generation. Yeah, and I think it's important to hold to the total trustworthiness for for two reasons. One, because the gospel is news, a a lot of the parts of the eyewitnesses' account hang on one another, Mm -hmm. right? So if Christ's garments did not actually get divided up at the cross, then that comes to bear on how we read Psalm 22, right? Mm. I mean, these types of things where, um, trying to think, there, there can be a questioning in, I think, liberal theology that goes along the lines of this. Well, would anything really be changed if Mary wasn't a virgin? Right. And, and, the, and that was the question that was asked in the 19th century. Right. And, and the, the Christian who knows the importance of the Bible as an inerrant, not erring, trustworthy book screams, yes everything would change because the child to be born is called holy mm-hmm. and the Holy Spirit is said to overshadow Mary. And if, if the angel was wrong that the Holy Spirit didn't overshadow a virgin, then what confidence do I have in any of the other details mm-hmm. that the baby was born in Bethlehem right. or that, that his name was Jesus, which means Emmanuel. And so because it's news, because the news is coming from eyewitnesses, uh, we need to, to bank on the total trustworthiness mm-hmm. of the scriptures. And, and as you've said just like me trusting in your drive to Appleton is trust in a person. Now, if I have reason to believe that you're untrustworthy, I, I might not take your your Appleton account mm-hmm. at face value. But when we believe someone is trustworthy, then we start to take their accounts at face value, which is once or, again... if you have a hard time believing the trustworthiness and somebody comes and delivers it to you, said, I'm keeping my word, even if you didn't believe it, that can be incentive for somebody to say, well, maybe I should take seriously what this person has to say. 
Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? If I'm having a hard time believing something, but someone says it doesn't matter if you believe it, it's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think you you find that our un, you know our, our nature as human beings is we are dead in our sin. We're dead in our trespasses. We are we are born doubters of God. We're born with unbelief. That is what what is the driving force in our hearts as it pertains to the words of God. So we don't want to believe God, and yet. When we look throughout the Bible, and this is, you know, I'm not somebody who call an evidentialist when it comes to apologetics. I, I don't think that ultimately we can convince somebody to believe the Bible simply because uh, we give them enough evidences to believe it. However, evidences can be extremely helpful in, in coming to a trust and a confidence in the Bible so that when you look at things like Psalm 22, or you look at Isaiah uh, and his, his very clear clear, clear picture of what the suffering servant would be. You, you see in this that God spoke something. It may have been hard to believe for the original hearers, but when it comes to the unfolding of human history, you see... Was it Micah? Is it Micah or Malachi where the, you, know, where you have the prophecy of Bethlehem, this tiny town with a savior? Micah. You see, Micah. Things like yeah. that. These are the types of things where you could, they would be evidences. Yep. They're not going to lead you all the way there, but they're helpful supports. Yeah. So you can look at it and say, hmm, maybe, maybe there is something to this. Uh, maybe this is more than just, you know, let's say in, in an Eastern philosophy, it says these are good things to do. Mm-hmm. Well, that might be the case, you know, in terms of somebody's daily practice, it might help them, uh, you know, to quote, center themselves or something like that. But is there anything to be believed in that with significance that has a bearing on actual life going mm-hmm. forward. Can you trust these words because statements were made that you found to be trustworthy in and of themselves, not just could this be helpful to you, but is this trustworthy in and of itself? Well, that, that may be, Chris, why many apologists, people that make defenses for the faith, why they focus so intently on the resurrection, because it is the type of evidence that you can prove. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's it's one of the most clear evidences because you start to tackle the different theories, like the swoon theory that <laughs> Jesus never actually died. And you go, well, it, that doesn't seem like that would be a possibility because the Romans were pretty trained killing machines. Right. Uh, also, the soldiers would have their heads if they didn't actually get the job done. Yeah. Or you think about like Jews grabbing and hiding the body to hide it. And, and you think, well, Matthew wrote that down. And so you start to go mm-hmm. through these evidences and your hope is not that you can logically prove someone that Jesus is Lord and Savior, but right. that if you can give them the evidence that the Bible is true in this place, then they have to start going, where else is it true? Yeah, especially in remarkable occurrences, right. you know, pertaining to things like the resurrection of a body. Yeah. So that's, it's, it's a big deal. And if you can see that this is something that happened, then it's something you could probably take a little bit more seriously than just looking at it and assessing it for yourself. So one thing that's helpful there is the, is the Bible... God, through his word, calls us to, in faith, believe his word is true. Mm-hmm. But it's not a blind faith. Right. Um, it, it, is, it is a hope of things which are not yet seen, but, but a hope that is somewhat founded on what is seen. I think about the story of Abraham. He, he's told in Genesis 12 that he will have many nations. And then in Genesis 15, he doesn't yet have a son. Uh, but the God who's promising him a son has already delivered him in war and has mm-hmm. provided him goods so vast that he and his cousin couldn't live on the same farm yeah. anymore. Yep. And so if you're Abraham, you're going, okay, I don't see it yet, but this is still the God who just delivered me in a war mm-hmm. and has given me abundant possessions. So 
I have reason to believe the thing that I don't yet see is actually true. Yeah. Uh, and that would be a good framework for why a Christian thinks through the trustworthiness of Scripture. We, we talked that one of the threads here, Chris, is, the, is that the, the doctrine of God, beliefs about God, are going to be intimately tied to the beliefs about Scripture. Mm-hmm. So here, here's kind of in a nutshell, Christians believe that the Scriptures are, do not contain lies because God cannot lie. Right. And it's not just that God doesn't lie or didn't lie or will not lie, but that he cannot. Cannot, yeah. His, his character is one in which he cannot be untruthful. And so if God is coming to us to reveal himself to us and he cannot lie, then we need to trust mm-hmm. his words. Uh, Psalm 119, 160 says, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Okay, this is talking about totality. Mm-hmm. Remember, God is not trustworthy like parents are trustworthy, meaning that they're usually good most of the time if they're good parents. Right. No, God is totally trustworthy. The sum of his word is truth. Every one of his righteous rules endures forever. Jesus says in John 10, the scriptures cannot be broken. Mm-hmm. Okay, if you're trying to attack something, you go for the weak spot, right? You yeah. go for the weak, like if you were trying to attack the scriptures, you go for the weak spot. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is saying, there is no weak spot. Right. The scriptures cannot be Broken, And so we end up with the, the doctrine of inerrancy is simply saying, because God is trustworthy, his word is trustworthy. Because God cannot lie, his word cannot lie. Because God cannot deceive, his word cannot deceive. Yeah, well stated. Well stated. So then, Chris, what about contradictions? What about contradictions? Isn't that the, the first? What about contradictions? They're all over the place, right? Yeah. Aren't they? So do you have one or two... Um common objections as far as contradictions in the gospels or in the Bible that people put out there and then maybe a mm-hmm. response to those. Because if we're saying, Hey, this whole thing is true, then we don't want to leave our people with zero right. reason to, you know, to defend themselves. Yeah. I mean, when I say contradictions over the place, I mean, I'm just parroting what, what people will generally will say parrot? because, uh, yeah, yeah. You'll, you'll talk to a lot of people. Would you be and a parrot or a macaw? A macaw. Um, a macaw's bigger. I don't know, actually. I've, I've never had either one of them. I don't, right. I don't like birds very much. Please leave a comment on our YouTube page. Is Pastor Chris a parrot or a macaw? Yeah, parrot or macaw, please. Uh, and why? Yeah. I don't think any of them have the same coloring I do. Hmm. I don't think there are many White. pale yeah, pale parrots running up. Maybe they're albino parrots. If you can find an albino parrot, yeah. please comment and let us know where you found it. It's a shame Gus and Haddon aren't with us today because I think they'd have one pulled they'd up on the They'd probably have one pulled up, yeah. That would have been really nice. Okay, so but, in jest, you said contradictions everywhere. Yeah. That's what people act like. That's what people act like. But, you know, what it, what it typically comes down to is things people find hard to believe. And not necessarily a contradiction, but things that people find hard to believe. So somebody might look at um, Jonah. Right, I mean that's something people will often go to and say, "Well, Jonah, Jonah, um, uh, you know, science contradicts that." They don't necessarily talk about internal contradictions, but they'll say things like, "Science contradicts that." Well, first of all, it doesn't necessarily do that because there have been people who have been swallowed up by sea creatures and vomited out before, and they've been all bleached because of stomach acids and whatever else goes on. But they've you know managed to survive. So this has happened. It's, it's demonstrable and so forth. But people oftentimes say, well, contradiction because they find things hard to believe. Um, some of the, I guess, more difficult cases that we might run into are places where, where it seems like a different statement is being made. Um, and so, you know, this oftentimes will happen with the, the gospel accounts. 
And so you look at the gospel accounts, and we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which we call the synoptic gospels, because they all effectively uh, revolve around kind of, we say, the, the same core. Um, they give a synopsis. They yeah, sum it a up. synopsis, exactly. Yeah. Whereas the gospel of John uh, provides a lot more, um, I guess, detailed personal perspective on the sayings and teaching of Jesus yeah, than of, you find. Jesus is more long-winded in John. Yeah, yeah, and you know this this does make a lot of sense because you know John was Jesus's you know best friend basically. He was beloved, and he was the faster one. Yeah, yeah, he was faster. He ran faster, didn't he? So you know people will look to that and say contradictions um, are are evident in the gospel accounts. Now I'm not going to you know try to talk specifics right now, but what I will say is to to help people understand, especially when it comes to the the, the gospel accounts. One of the best things that we can do to, to kind of look at that and say, well, why, why is it that, um, you know, for instance, the Lord's Prayer, you'll find, um, you know, just a, a little difference. There's things that aren't as fleshed out in Luke as yeah. there are in Matthew. Um, you'll also find things like, you know, when Matthew talks about, um, when, when, it, when Matthew's quoting Jesus saying, uh, how much more will your father give good gifts to you? Luke says, how much more will, you know, your father give the Holy Spirit? Matthew says, if I cast out demons, then the spirit of God is present. Mm-hmm. If Luke says the, the finger. Yeah. Of yeah. God. Yeah. And, and so we, we need to be careful as we understand what inerrancy is and what it isn't. Inerrancy means this is truly the word of God. It is what it is. It, it says what actually uh, it, it means to say, and it is truthful. Now, if, if I told you, if I, if I said this to you, Josh, if I said, you know what? I am taking a trip to Stevens Point later on today to head home. There's no Chipotle right? there, so I There's, got nothing for Yeah, you. no Chipotle. Now, you could turn around and say, you could, you could go and, and uh, you go home and talk to Morgan and say, you know, Chris is driving to central Wisconsin today. That's a true statement. Right, so it would not be inaccurate for you to, to to quote me as saying, you know, if 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 you were to call me up then and say, Chris Morgan's having a hard time believing that you went to Central Wisconsin today. You know, she said you you said you're going to Stevens Point. And say, yeah, and it means the same thing. Right, it means the same thing. And so, in many ways, the synoptics and and you see more of. I don't want to say a conflict. And occurring. I might to to flesh that even a little yeah. further. Let's say you were going to Almond instead of Stevens Point, and sure. Morgan doesn't know where Almond is. Right. I might say, you say, I'm driving to Almond, and I say he's going to the Stevens Point area. Sure. Because yep. I have a different audience mm-hmm. and a different intent, and so my, my speech is going to be characterized not just by uh, what the truth is, but who I'm speaking to, which yeah. is why you have um, little... Aramaic words in some of the Gospels Correct. that you don't have in other Gospels. Correct. And so I think that brings us, Chris, like you said, that the, the inerrancy means the Scriptures are true in what they are saying, but oftentimes they're saying things in different genres to different people. Sure. So one of the things that, that happens quite a bit is that people will doubt. So they'll look at First Peter and Second Peter, mm-hmm. and they'll say, man, Second Peter has about 50% hopex legomenon. Yep. Right? There's my nerd for the day. It means unique yep. words, words not used elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And so I go, I don't know if Second Peter's written by the guy that wrote First Peter, because right. he's using a lot of unique words and, and literary style, and, and also it's, it's dated later, and mm-hmm. 
And one of the things they'll say is, it's so different than 1 Peter that we can't trust that Peter actually <laughs> wrote it. But what they don't take into account is that Peter is writing at a different point in his life. Right. He's near death. He's writing for a different purpose. First Peter was written to protect Christian or to encourage Christians in suffering. Mm-hmm. Second Peter was written to warn false teachers. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine which of those two Chris might have a harsher tone? Probably be the one addressed to those dealing with false teaching. And so what we can do is we can look at first and second Peter and say, there's actually reason to believe that Peter wrote both of these. And the difference is because he wrote to a different people at a different time with a different purpose. Right. That's the same thing is true with the gospels. Yep. You have writers writing to different people at a, with different purposes. And therefore some language is going to change. Some of the order of the story is going to change. Um, something like the genealogical accounts in Matthew and Luke. Why are they different? Where Well, it seems like Matthew is trying to tell a primarily Hebrew audience that Jesus is the Hebrew Messiah right. from the line of Abraham. Luke is trying to tell a more Gentile audience that right. Jesus is the second Adam that he has come to do what Adam has not done. Yeah. Therefore, the genealogy in Matthew starts with Abraham and goes down, but the genealogy in Luke goes to Adam, to Adam. the Son of God. Yeah. And so these discrepancies can oftentimes be fixed by talking about the type of writing, the genre, the audience, and the purpose, which that's something that I, I um, was just helpfully talking to uh, a brother in Christ. How do we... How do we tell people that we believe that the Bible, do we, maybe this is a better question, Chris. Mm-hmm. Do we believe, believe the Bible is literal when we say that it's true? That it's literally true? You know, it's, it's, it's kind of, that's a sticky question because. That's why I asked it, man. Yeah. And it, but it's a good question because um, part of the, part of the issue that, that arose out of the inerrancy debates, um, there are. There are folks that, you know, and, I, and this is not a pejorative, but this is literally what the, the name of the group was that came out of the inerrancy debates in the early 20th century, was you had the fundamentalists and the evangelicals. And the fundamentalists took a particular line on the issue of inerrancy that influenced not only their understanding of the nature of God's word, but also the interpretation of it. And that was a strict literalism. Now, a strict literalism, we, we would say, is unhelpful because different genres of literature are not intended to be taken literally. Mm-hmm. So, you know, things uh, like metaphors, metaphors are metaphors. They're, they're not there. We don't believe that God has wings. Right, right. But God quite often says he will shelter us in his wings. Yes. So we believe that the metaphor is saying a true thing. God is a sheltering God. He's a God in whom we take refuge. However, which right. way this God who is spirit will protect us, he will protect us. But he's told us wings is how we can imagine that. Yeah. Though we don't think literally he has wings. Yeah. Now, what's important, very important to understand is somebody may look at that then and say, well, we'll see. If we, we can't take it literally, then then we can diminish. And, and, and what's important to keep in mind is that when you use metaphors, when you use analogies, you are you are typically speaking drawing something that somebody can understand to a bigger item to a bigger picture i don't i don't go to my kids and say my love for you and then and then i come up with something so great and so outlandish so that they can understand it's something smaller right I want them to understand how significant my love is. And so I'm something like, I tell my kids all the time and, and you know, ask my, my kids, I'll say, how much does daddy love you? 
more than the whole world. Now, that's a statement of quality, not necessarily a metaphor, but the point being made is that we don't draw people's attention when we're trying to help them understand something. We don't draw people's attention by coming up with things that are so great and then we diminish them for the person's understanding. We want them to understand something, so we, we give a little picture of what this is like so that they can get the slightest grasp of the significance of it. You know, as an example, Jesus talking about, um, you know, the, the sparrows and how, how your Father in heaven, every single sparrow that falls to the earth is known by God mm-hmm. and that you are of much greater worth than a sparrow. So he's drawing attention to something small that we can understand to something bigger. So then when it comes to issues, and this is very important, it's very important to understand this. Some people think things like, well, there, there couldn't be a literal hell. There couldn't be a literal hell because that just doesn't seem to make sense. And, and so you look at Jesus equating hell with the place of perpetual burning, uh, the Valley of Hinnom outside of Jerusalem and you think, okay, well, Jesus is using the word Gehenna here to talk about hell. Well, he just wants people to take a look outside and say, oh, yeah, well, it's, it's bad. But Jesus is helping people understand what's the most despicable, awful, horrible, stinking place you can imagine. And saying the reality is worse than that. Mm-hmm. Because this is the only thing you can equate it to. So, so you wouldn't read the story of Gehenna, which was a trash heap of burning flesh and dung. Right. And say, oh, that's exactly what hell is. We believe right. that that's literally what the... You say, no, Jesus is saying there is a literal truth of the place of eternal torment. Right. And I'll give you a picture to say what that is. And the reality is far worse. And that's where you have to... You just have to... You have to use your common sense. Right. I know when... So Chris may say, uh, Josh, the job you have is better than the job you don't have. That's a literal statement. You know, I, I don't think I have to work hard. Sure. But you might say, Josh, a bird in the hand's worth two in the bush. You don't have a bird in your hand, Josh. Right. I don't. Yeah. But but it the it symbolizes a truth that the thing that you currently possess is worth more than the double thing that you right. don't yet have. You right. might lose the bird in your hand to get the two in the bush. I I know when you're speaking in a metaphor. Right. If if I step back to think at all, and and that's where. Um, you when take we, a time to think, in fact. Yeah. yeah. When we're thinking about the literality of things, there are certain parts of the Bible that are certainly literal. When, when we're told the accounts of Jesus walking the road to Calvary and giving up his life and the, the, you know, when Paul says, I delivered this to you as of first importance that Christ died and on the third day was resurrected from right. the dead. Like that's a literal truth. But when Jesus says there was a man walking from Jericho, he his audience knows he's speaking in a parable. In a parable, right. Um, we don't need to believe that there was literally a good Samaritan in order to believe that the resurrection is literal because right. it's two different genres. Right. One interesting little example here so I can get my email inbox full is I think you find that generally there's a, a person who believes literal six-day creation. Like and, me. And <laughs> thinks that they then have to believe literal thousand-year reign. Right. Because if one number is literal and the other number is literal, and yet what we would say is, well, if Genesis is historical narrative, then literality is important there. Mm-hmm. But if Revelation is symbolic apocalypse, literality is is less common there. Right. Different genre. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Moses' claim when he's recording 
Genesis, when he's recording the events of the creation of the world, there is nothing in Moses' account that would lead you to believe that he is speaking anything other than a, a clear statement pertaining to how God created the heavens and the earth. There, there's there's While no in revelation. Everything leads you to believe that yeah. that John is speaking in numbers yes. and images and symbols. Because he literally says, literally, he literally says, "I saw in a vision." Right, yeah. I saw. So, um, when 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 John is is receiving the revelation, the apocalypse, the unveiling uh, that that he is of you know the culmination of all things, there are certain things uh, in the book of Revelation that should be understood as literally true, like Jesus is returning. Right. But there are other things in Revelation that are clearly symbolic. If you understand, and this is not a, you know, supposed to demean anybody who may look at Revelation in a certain perspective, but it's fairly evident. No, reasonable people believe that it's a literal thousand-year reign. Right. I'm just arguing that you don't have to believe it's a literal thousand-year reign because you believe in a literal number elsewhere. Right, exactly. Because the genre is different. Exactly, and it's, and it's supposed to be understood within its context. And the context of Revelation is, here is a vision with a whole host of symbolic numbers, specifically, that we're supposed to look at from a particular perspective. And so, you know, it, it is very helpful when it comes to how we interpret Scripture, uh, hermeneutics, the, the science of interpretation, it's, it's very helpful for us to do that outside of a vacuum, not mm-hmm. in a vacuum, but to ask the questions of other people so that we don't fall into traps of our own making. And so I, th- this is where tradition comes alongside this issue of inerrancy. We think, okay, maybe I'm having trouble understanding. How can my pastor help me? How can my community help me? How can the, the history of the church helped me to make sense of things that seem like, well, I, I don't know that this mm-hmm. is uh, understandable. Well, right. it has been understandable for a couple thousand years. You just have to ask the right questions, the right people. Yeah, so let's, let's help people understand what we just talked about for 35 minutes. If you're, if you're sitting in the pews, um, other than maybe intriguing different insights here and different ways to view different genres and stuff like mm-hmm. that, what you need to know is because God is true, his word is true. Yep. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and he's the word, the revelation is true. Mm-hmm. Because the spirit is the spirit of truth, and he guides us into all truth, and he guided the apostles into the further truth, it's true. Because Jesus on Re- in Revelation 19 is faithful and true. Because God is true, his word is true, which right. means when you come to a confusing passage, not just confusing as, and I don't know what that means, but confusing as, and can this be true? You assume because God is true, his word is true. Yep. That gives you great confidence as you come to church on Sundays, as you approach Bible studies. God is true, his word is true. Yep. Inerrancy. Yep, inerrancy. Thanks for taking some time to think. We'll be back next Tuesday, a time to think Tuesday, talking about biblical clarity. You might think, Bible doesn't seem all that clear, many different places, but the Bible is clear. We'll talk about that next time on A Time to Think.